welcome back rebels so we just got off of a uh, little zoom call with is this working a fantastic podcast and we just did sort of like a little mini christmas special with them and they were talking about um success and it really got me thinking about it's such a cliche to say like you need to work out what success means to you yeah but it's so true because it is so different. And obviously there's the the cultural version of what success should be, which is typically like this this family, uh, this kind of straight relationship with this many kids living in a big house with a nice car. And that like that's the kind of presented that, that is equal success. But I think for so that's true for so few people. Oh, 100%. And I think what was really interesting about the way they asked it when we were talking to them is it was in part of like a quick fire round. So you just had to say what you thought really quickly. And I just kind of said happiness kind of was the first thing that came to me. Success is happiness. Yeah. It's interesting actually like now breaking down like why I said that because I kind of said it without even thinking it was just what to me that that is. And I think happiness is the most important thing to me anyway. I think as your answer kind of stated that it was kind of it's obviously different for every different person but yeah I think once you know what your happiness is then you just need to really really go for it but I think it can be hard like even when it comes to like when we talk about like finding your passion and these kind of things not everyone knows what success is to them and no one not everyone knows what makes them happy so I think it a lot of it comes down to kind of really exploring yourself and asking yourself those questions of like what is it what is it that makes you really happy and then stopping at the answer and being like does that actually make me really happy or is that just what I've told myself I've read a really interesting article on medium today and it was talking about financial freedom and it was saying that you are financially free as soon as you the work that you do you enjoy and it funds your lifestyle and it was saying that if you're an artist who work, who earns $38,000 a year you may be financially free compared to a lawyer that that gains $380,000 a year. And that was a revelation for me to go, oh my God, I'm financially free. Because you you hear those words and it sort of conjures up the image of the yacht and the mansion, like, oh, I'm financially free. I could retire at any point. But this guy was saying, no, financial freedom is once you reach that point where your career is a happy and fulfilled career that provides for what you do. And I was like, well, that's lovely. I'll, I'll start <laughs> up to that. Yeah, because I suppose it is, do you wake up every day and do what you want to do? And as soon as you've hit that point, you've just hit the jackpot. Like that's what we're all aiming for to be able to wake up in the morning, do what we love doing, go to sleep and just repeat that every single day. And I think it's interesting because you definitely see it in the guests that we've had on the show before. And just, I feel like the, the way our own lives have progressed as well. Like you do realize like if you look back at where we were, say 10 years ago, there were so many other things around that were kind of getting in the way of us just doing what made us happy. And I suppose the more you try things, the more like you're like, hey, does this make me happy? No, no, no. I'm going to stop doing that one. Try this one. And it is just kind of going down those different roads of saying like, does this work? Will this lead to some form of happiness? And I think as we kind of talked about with the, the guys on that podcast, it's like you just have to walk down the roads because you'll never find it if you just sit in your house. Yeah. So the happiness doesn't come from doing the thing in order to get something at the end of it it just comes from doing the thing doing the thing 100%. and that's 
And that's what a lot of people, where a lot of people are lost. They really are lost sheep because, and we've ranted before about all of the get rich quick schemes and the, and all of these YouTube entrepreneur adverts that we get. What they are selling you is do this to get to the thing, not do this to do this. And yeah, doing this 100%. is where the magic is. That's so interesting because I feel like, yeah, you think of all those get rich quick schemes and they are all like, okay, go and buy this thing from China, sell it. And it's like, you're not going to enjoy doing that. Like that deceives the point. It's like nothing like that is going to happen. That's going to be like, oh, cool, you've done this for six months. You've got 10 million pounds in your bank account and you never need to work again. It will just never, ever, ever happen like that. The only way to do it is to work out what you like doing every day and trying to get as close to that happening as possible because yeah like you're not going to enjoy selling stuff that you don't want to sell to people that you don't even know it's like yeah all of those get rich quick schemes involve doing something that you don't enjoy doing so it's like yes you might get rich potentially very small chance i'm guessing but you're not going to be happy at the end of that and i think as soon as you've gone down that route then it's almost the same as people who've gone down like a finance route and or lawyer or something that's kind of like years later they're like oh i don't actually enjoy this at all but now i'm so deep into this that i can't really escape yeah so if you had that 10 million in your bank account what is it you would be doing with your days and for a lot of people like if you're listening to this now ask yourself that question and if you don't know yet then really try and work it out like if if every day you could wake up and you could just do a thing like that's your calling that literally that is the thing that you need to try and do and that might involve sacrifice it might involve you might not be able to do it for another six years um in fact again i'll try and find find this article because i just read it and then just kind of started thinking of my own stuff off the back of it rather than what the article was about but um i think it was called the 10 percent rule and it was talking about how each year you get 10 percent closer to doing the thing that you love full time so it's your side hustle that takes up 10% in year one. It takes up 20% in year two. Um, I think I think it can be done quicker than that. Um, I think that it shouldn't take 10 years for you to finally be 100% able to earn from, from your thing. Yeah. I, mean, uh, I mean, we were surviving, easily surviving after three years. So I think it can be done quicker. But um, it's definitely food for thought of however however you do it, however the whatever the method is like just making sure that you are on that path the the path to happiness and and that sounds like really grandiose and it sounds really big but what else are you here for what else are you listening to this podcast for like what else are you do you draw or paint or write or sing or dance or whatever it is that you do like why why do you do it you do it because it makes you happy and this is what you need to do that's why you're on this planet so do it to get to that stage as well is always going to take some form of sacrifice some form of effort to get there and i suppose the if the 10 percent rule if that was what it was called is probably about is someone who doesn't take enough sacrifice to take to get to there sooner it's almost like if you're only going to do it for a couple of hours in the evening once a week then it's going to take a lot longer to get there than it is if you cut down to four days a week at work put one day absolutely into whatever this thing is or make sure that your weekends are absolutely filled with doing that thing because it's like there's going to be some sacrifice somewhere and it's like yes you're you might have to take a pay cut you might have to like live to different means but i think that's so worth doing if you can get to where you want to be quicker and yeah life is long 
and there are so many years left to do this so you can take your time you can do it slowly but if you want to be happier sooner it's like this is like the get rich quick scheme of just happiness i suppose of like the more effort you put into getting there now to finding that thing the you're going to be so wealthy when it comes to happiness like down the line yeah we've had several millionaires on this show and as i always say to you guys like get money money is really great fun tokens they allow you so much freedom they allow you to do a lot so i want you all to yes aspire and when you have your goal charts and all of that sort of stuff like stick money on there because it's really important but when we talk to these millionaires they don't like they never say oh, i'm so happy like what makes me happy is waking up and checking my bank balance yeah. So many of our guests that have, that have been on the show, like like name them, like Daniel Priestley is is a very successful entrepreneur. Um, Mike Winnett sold his company for whatever it was, $11 million or whatever. Um, Liz Earle sold um, her beauty company to Boots. Holly Tucker that we had on the other week sold um, Not On The High Street. These are all like insanely like wealthy people and I'm sure that money like allows them lots of freedom in their life and is great, but they don't talk about it at all. Like other than we, well, yeah, it's, it's good that I've got it, but like I don't, it doesn't affect or define my happiness in any way. And there are studies on the number that we need to to make us like feel more happy because it allows us certain freedoms. But then after you hit that point, it's it's nothing to do with that. And it's always going to be the pursuit of whatever it is that, so for Holly Tucker, it's inspiring small business owners. And that's, like it's clear if you listen to that interview for an hour it's clear that that is what she cares about that's really what she cares about and that's what brings her happiness yeah and i suppose that comes back to the financially free thing you were talking about earlier like as soon as you've hit that number with your creative passion or whatever you're trying to create it's like that's it that's you don't need to get any more in that because you can sustain yourself being happy forever i think there is definitely a mistake that people make of getting to that number and being like, I can go much higher than this, but then suddenly losing what it is they actually like about doing what they do. And I think there is definitely that balance of making sure that you still love what you do compared to the, like chasing the money. It's like, are you chasing the love for your daily life? Or are you chasing a different pay packet that's just further and further on? And obviously I think it's hard when you get to a stage to actually stop yourself and be like, I don't need more than this. Because if I try and go for that, I'm being greedy and I'll lose out on the actual thing that I love to do. Yeah, and I mean, this is definitely an example in your life and I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but like that like in the past year you've you've stepped back from our businesses to to put more time into your photography and that's because that's what is really like setting you on fire at the moment. So you've made that decision of like, and you, we had a meeting with all the staff and you were like, I'm going to take a back seat. I'm going to take less of a role in like day-to-day operations and all of that sort of stuff. And that was not a, a decision about anything other than your happiness. Yes, I think for me, and it's one thing I've really learned this year is the fact that entrepreneurship and freelancing are two very, very different things. And I think entrepreneurship is growing a business running a business whereas freelancing is doing what it is you love every day and you don't need to have a big team it's just you're doing the creative endeavor and I think one thing that I've really taken from this year is even though it's been really hard it's probably been one of the most creative years I've ever had because I've actually been creating and 
it's amazing and as soon as you can get into that state of the most important thing is to create stuff and be happy then it's amazing how that just like completely changes your mindset and i almost feel like now i'm probably getting close to that financially free life because i am happy in doing what i do every day like taking photos recording the podcast are my two favorite things in the world and i get to do them all the time yeah totally and and in this episode we're talking to Stuart Semple and I mean here here is a guy who really has worked out what's important to him what he stands for what he's trying to do in the world like the change he's trying to make and I I, I really want to thank Stuart I mean this is this is the first podcast where I've ever told someone that I love them uh live in the middle of an interview so and um, which obviously made me feel <laughs> really awkward uh but I just want to thank Stuart for like being so open and honest, even set down to the point where he was like completely transparent with his financials, told us exactly how much he earns. And here is a guy who's got it figured out because he knows he knows 100 percent. And the conversation about money is like totally illuminating. And the, the main link between what we've just been talking about and, and this episode is is like the mental health benefits. It's like Stuart is so open and honest and talks about like the experiences that he's had, like harrowing stuff that really affected his mental health and then the path out of that, which is basically creativity. When he said that, it really made me realize actually quite a few different guests we've had on this show, creativity has been their escape. It's been their savior. It's allowed, it's completely changed their life when they've been in a really, really bad point. And we talk as well towards the end of the episode just about how important it is for your mental health and how everyone should have an element of creativity in your life just for your own well-being, like how important creativity is. And I think this is such an inspiring episode and hopefully everyone leaving it will be like, fuck, yeah, this is the most important thing. Yeah, this was one of my favourite episodes. Um, Stuart Semple is an artist and founder of the art materials store Culture Hustle. Stuart makes art that often isn't a physical object, but that is an experience either in the real world or online. His work often focuses on community, social issues and mental health. As an ambassador for the Mind Charity in the UK, Stuart flies the flag for creativity as a tool for positive mental well-being. In this episode, we talk about making paint, eBay and creativity. Everyone has their creative voice and, you know, no way's right, no way's wrong, but it's important to A, realise you have one and B, stop not letting it out because the world needs to see it. Hi Stuart. Hello. How's it going? It's going. Uh, it's good to be here with you. I'm excited. Yeah, really good to have you on, dude. So is it true, Stuart, that you started your career on eBay? Yeah, that is true. It is fact. I did, <laughs> yeah, way way back when um, eBay was first invented. So we're talking about like 1999 and I had an old Dell laptop and this pay-as-you-go Vodafone that I used to plug in and I'd upload a couple of two or three pictures every night and sell them on eBay uh, when I was a teenager. And that's kind of how it all sort of started. And how did that go at the time? Because I don't imagine there was many artists selling on eBay at the time. Well, that was the good thing. So I wasn't the best one, but I was probably the only one, which meant I could actually sell work. And um, it was interesting because I actually um, started to make friends with an audience and started to realise there were people out there who were interested in similar ideas to me. And I started to build a bit of a community and I certainly managed to pay the rent by doing this and keep my art going. So it's sort of, even though I didn't get big money, 
you know, these things were 30 quid or 50 quid or whatever. It meant that I could keep going and it sort of made me feel like a professional artist in a way. And it was good. And at the time, like that was 99, was obviously pre most social media, like the way we know it now. In what way were you kind of having these conversations, like forming a community in that kind of space? Yeah, that's amazing because like there was no, there weren't even blogs. So Mm. the reason why I was on eBay in the first place was because it was literally the only place you could upload an image. Like you can't, it was just easy. I could put up a picture and people would see it. So it's more about sharing the work than selling stuff. And um, yeah, people would email in. Um, I made friends with a lot of the people that were collecting the work. They're still into it now. They'll still come to my shows and they've still got those pieces. They've never sold them. They're, They're like friends. They're like family, you know. It's amazing. I think it is so important that when you're starting anything, that you really look after and foster those relationships with the people who were there in the beginning, because they will be there the whole time. Like there's so many people who like follow me on Instagram, who followed me since I started and my career and like artwork and visuals have completely changed, but people have followed along that journey. And I think that's something that people really like to be able to see you grow and evolve like as time goes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the thing is like, I have this sort of belief that art needs an audience, you know, like if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does a tree really fall? Well, actually, what's the point of me sitting in my bedroom making a picture that no one's ever going to see? So I understand that it's 50-50, 50 me, 50 the audience. So I'm there to make stuff for them. So I'm all about them. I'm here for them. They provide the food I eat, the materials I use. I couldn't do it without them. So I want them on the journey. They're part of it, whether they like it or not. They're coming. We're in it together. It's really interesting you say that because I made a post about this the other day because I was scrolling through. I suppose it was designed to be uh, some sort of motivational post, but it's and it had like hundreds of thousands of likes. So the algorithm, it was to do with art. So the algorithm posted it up to me. And it was a quote that said something like, an artist should not pay attention to audience, real art. Um, flows from an artist's soul or something wanky like that and mm. I would just like fundamentally disagreed with that because like without I, I, I did a piece at uni that said without you I am nothing exactly. to, and that was designed at whoever was reading it on the wall because really like if we're not if we're making the work to then lock it in a vault and not show anyone then what then what is the point yeah no I totally agree with you I mean I, I think that's that's gross otherwise it's basically masturbation it's for self pleasure right <laughs> yeah um so I think art should serve a social function it should be absolutely about the people that engage with it and interact with it it should empower them it should make their life better in some way or we may as well do something else there's a load of ways to please you that are easier than painting pictures or making art I suppose it's yeah, almost 100%. like the difference between a diary and a novel it's like if a diary might be just for you, but then it, like you wouldn't call a diary art. You would call mm. the novel art. That's the creation that you're sharing mm. with the world to hopefully make someone feel a certain way or have some kind of reaction to it. Yeah, it's your sketchbook, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's fine to make work for yourself. Not a problem. Fill your boots, do it. But I like to make work that I hope helps somehow, some way. You know, that's the work I enjoy making and why I do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's fine. I'm not I'm not saying don't make you work. Do you think if um, someone was to start now um, that eBay could work or is it just too saturated? I don't know. I mean, the world's so different. I think yeah. it would be very, very hard. I mean, hard to build a, 
a loyal audience that really understand what you're doing. But then again, if you're making really interesting work and it's different than everybody else and it's got something to say and it connects with a group of people, then I think it could exist anywhere. It could exist on a wall. It could exist in a gallery. It could, you know, it's what are you saying is actually what matters. The platform's not the point. Good ideas will spread. And, and you know, if people relate to them, then hopefully that connection will happen. It's like a good idea is plat- like it doesn't platforms don't hold that back because a good idea is something that someone else will tell someone about that word of mouth can never go like no matter what the platform is how big an audience that has on there if someone finds something interesting enough to share with someone else another human then you can't stop that spreading it's like whenever a movement happens or you get a group of people together who yeah want to start some kind of movement or something it's like if the internet went away, you would that would still happen. It's like movements happened before the internet started and they'll happen going forward. But I would argue that the room that the artwork is in does affect the artwork. So I've used this analogy before, but when you when you walk past a homeless person in the street, it's like Banksy was able to sell for like $5. He was selling prints in Central Park, but because he was appearing like he was just one of the many hustlers that are selling those, those kind of cheap prints, no one was buying them. But then you take that exact same artwork and you put it into a white cube, all of a sudden the the room gives it a new value. So I suppose you do need to be careful where you do display your work because maybe the eBay is the equivalent of being the artist in Central Park that's not selling anything. I think, yeah, the context is everything, but it depends what you're trying to do. So I would be saying, um, I want to communicate with as many people as possible. I believe art should be for everybody. I believe it should be accessible. Where are the people? So actually right now I'm in the process of opening quite a big contemporary art gallery in the middle of an abandoned high street because that is where the people are. Um, And I totally understand they might not get it um, and it might be out of context and it might be weird, but that's where it needs to be, in my opinion. So if they're on eBay, it's on eBay. If they're on Instagram, it's on Instagram. Um, Because I'm all about connecting to audience. Whereas if you're trying to sell a very expensive thing for a lot of money to a rich oligarch who's in England for two days uh, (laughs) with, with his wife before they fly off to the yacht, then you might need to catch them at eight o'clock at night in a posh Mayfair gallery after they've had a couple of drinks. Um, but it depends what your game is. Yeah, sure. How did the, um, how did the, is that because of COVID there's, there's become available spaces on the high street? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the high street, high street's kind of empty. Um, I was just very lucky. Someone, I actually know the owner of the building and he's like, look, there's no business rates till March. I don't want it empty. Actually, Samsung had the building. They've closed, they've left it. Doesn't want nothing in there. Um, so it's an opportunity. Why wouldn't I? curate a show in that space so it makes sense yeah that sounds amazing what do you how do you kind of see the future of the high street kind of going down that route <laughs> um i don't know i, I can't see the future. <laughs> i never saw this i mean i don't think anyone did but um i i think basically you know the high streets days were numbered when amazon got good i, I think you know mm. this isn't a covid thing this is coming anyway i mean covid sort of sealed the coffin it's accelerated but, it hasn't it yeah it was coming um where do I see it? It's a social space, isn't it? I think, you know, things that you can't do online. So the cafes, barbershops, hopefully more performance, more arts, more connection. It's going to be used for that, hopefully. It will go back to the people. It'll be a community thing rather than a place where big brands sell things that you don't need, hopefully. So 
obviously and i mean we've we're like five minutes into the interview and you've mentioned a, a bunch of times that how how art is should be for the people the unfortunate thing is that i don't think we are there yet and obviously there are incredible artists that are doing things for the people um yourself and i also think of um stick um i don't know if you know his stuff yeah. but he's doing so much in with like community give back and stuff mm. like that um how how are we going to change this like how are we going to because i suppose maybe maybe part of the problem is the general public that we want to have the art also has this kind of barrier because they've been told for so long that art is not for them how do mm. we smash down that that sort of preconception no I, I wish i had like the magic answer but i think it's time um and i think that the internet's great because it enables anybody without any fear to connect with an idea you know, they don't need to travel somewhere, walk into a white wall gallery. They're scared they don't have the education or the lingo or whatever. Um, so I think that's good. I think that's kind of on our side. Um, but I really, I think it's just about making it accessible and available and encouraging people to come in um, and just being open about it. I mean, most artists I know make stuff because they're actually quite generous. They want people to see what they make. Mm. Um, it's, you know, in my opinion, it's the middle, and they tend to be men, so I use that word, the middle men who want to protect it and lock it down and profit from it and make it elite. And it's actually a relatively new thing. I mean, this is since the Victorian ages. We didn't really have the commercial galleries before that. So before that, art was just how we expressed ourselves and how we communicated. You know, we've been doing that since we drew on the wall of a cave. This is what I mm. hunted and this is what it looked like and so-and-so chased it down and this is what happened. It's just been co-opted and we just need to start using it again. How do you balance that with also the need to pay the rent and put a roof over your head? Ah, so that's a good question. Because, um, so this is a very good question. So how do we give and be generous with our work and also keep our practice going, keep our studio going as artists, right? I mean, this is the question. And the answer is that the two things can sit perfectly well together. There's absolutely nothing to stop you spending your money however you see fit in a moral and ethical way. And there's nothing to stop you selling your work and getting paid very well. But the decision is, do you buy the new Tesla or do you feed 100 families at Christmas with the money from your art? Do you use it to open a free art space so that local school kids can come and connect with new ideas? That's up to you. So that's the answer. Absolutely. So, But in terms of you as an artist... Um you're you're obviously very generous with i mean all like i watch your youtube channel and everything is about you helping other artists and you're doing tutorials and giving away all this information and then i look at what you've built with culture hustle and mm. and how it is a, res a resource for artists um but then where does the cash generation for you to to like turn your lights on ah i see from? what you mean well, um, I get a very small salary from Culture Hustle, and I'll be completely honest, I get £740 a month. Um, I live in a very small rented house. I have two pairs of sneakers. I'm not a sneakerhead. Um, <laughs> my favourite meal is lentils and rice. I live on £1,500 a month. Even if Culture Hustle made £10 million, I would still put it into the things I put it into, which is making things better for other people, because I have everything I need. So... That's how I do it. That is amazing. I love, I really love that answer. It's so good. And I think it's really important for people to work out what actually is important to them and like build a life around that. Because I think a lot of people do get this idea that having 
100 pairs of sneakers is important to them. Sorry, David, who connects to this. Yeah, all right, guys. No, 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 no like each their yeah. own. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying yeah. I'm, that's not my thing. Yeah, mm. but I think but I think it's not a lot of people's thing. A lot of people who will have those things, it, if they actually ask themselves what is important to them, it's probably not owning those things. And I think understanding what you actually do need to survive, what you need to actually sustain the happy life that fulfills you, is a really important place to start. Yeah, I mean, it's like you work out what you need and then you work out how you can finance that and then everything else is a bonus. And then, you know, if you want to buy some really crazy Jordans or whatever, then do it, enjoy it. For yeah. your dudes, you deserve it, go for it. Um, Thanks, but if, you. Yeah, but if, if it rocks your boat, like we just, um, you know, I don't know if you saw, but we made these Christmas art tins over at Culture Hustle and every yeah. time someone buys a tin, we're working with the local food banks, you know, and we're providing food and fuel and um, toys for the for the local families. And I just found out we've now hit our target. So that's a thousand people in our local area this Christmas. We'll have a hundred pounds to spend on food, twenty five quid to keep the lights on, and a twenty pound toy voucher. Right now, that's beautiful. I tell you what, I, I will never ever get that pleasure out of buying a toy um, yeah. as I will knowing that's happening this Christmas. Yeah. Right, um, so. That's exactly what I mean. So what is Culture Hustle and where was it born? Well, it's kind of weird. It's really weird because, um, like, uh, it's two things. So one, I wanted to make a website that would sell cool things that we found. So my friend Castle in Denver, like, can find really cool stuff. And I was like, it would be really good to just put it on a website and we'll call it Culture Hustle. So that's how that started. And then this whole initiative. What kind bought- of stuff? Oh, just stuff from like the thrift stores and things, like crazy things. She's just got an amazing eye. So it's like, we'll just do that. It'll be fun. We'll put some books and stuff um, just for fun, for a thing to do together. And then this whole Anisha Kapoor thing kicked off with the blackest black. And then I made the pinkest pink, which I already had. And I was like, oh, it'd be really funny to put it on the internet as a, like a piece of performance art. Like the website would be like a piece of art as a joke. Um, and we had Culture Hustle there. So I was like, oh, let's put it on the Culture Hustle thing. We've already got the domain and stuff. It'll be a good way to kick it off. And then it just sort of took on a life of its own. And now it's turned into this quite big um, non-profit art materials thing. <laughs> so I don't think I can describe it. It's a monster. And it's like we make the coolest art materials in the world. I would say that, but actually I do believe they are. And we share them with artists on a not-for-profit basis. And then we put all the money into making more cool art materials for artists and providing artist support for those that use it. So that's it. That's what it is. And that's what it does. So there's there's obviously a, a really long history of artists creating their own their own like scratching their own itch creating their own pigment and stuff. Mm. But I would I would think that when you created your pink is pink, I mean there were obviously Windsor and Newton and all of these companies there were thousands of of pinks to choose from what yeah. was it that because I feel like most artists wouldn't take the initiative like maybe they did 30 40 years ago yeah. but in the in the current space most artists would go well there's a pink I'll use that what yeah. was it that drove you to to go I need to be yeah. pinker no no but, but it's not just the pink like you've hit it on the nose so basically 
up until relatively recently, there weren't commercial paints that you could buy, walk into a shop and buy. Artists made their own, right? That's how you had to do it. There was no way about it. So you would have a hookup that would be called a pigment man that you would meet who traded a certain colour from Venice or or the Silk Road. And in your studio, you would make them into potions and you're almost an alchemist. And you would guard these recipes with your life and your studio assistants would make colours for you. That's how it has been done. Now, if you are like me and you're obsessed with looking at art, you walk around the National Gallery, you look at a Van Gogh, you're like, holy shit, these are the brightest, most vibrant colours I've seen in my life. Then you go down to your local art shop and you buy a tube of Winsor & Newton. You're like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. This isn't the same stuff. What's going on? Why can't I get that? Which is all it was about for me. So I was like, how is a paint made? What are they made of? Wait a sec. It's basically four ingredients. I can do this myself. Hmm. Now we're in the territory of a Tesco ready meal versus actually cooking a nice meal from scratch with your own ingredients, right? Now I've got a much more delicious meal. So I'm building these colours for my art shows because I want my paintings to be more vibrant, like the history books. I don't want the commercial paints because they're like, you know, I'm not slapping anyone off, but they're full of water and fillers and the cheapest pigments you can get and they're out of date, these formulas, right? And I'm just telling you that, hand on my heart. We pick them apart all day. They are really lazy and they're, they're, they're ripping you off. Um, and I didn't like it. I didn't want to use it. So I wanted my own things that were more saturated, more potent, played how I wanted them to play on the surface, right? Um, so that's what I was doing. I got into making paint 25 years ago um, to use in my work. That's it. I think back to that meal analogy as well, like surely the satisfaction at the end of that, once you've finished a piece to know how much work has gone into that. It's not like you've just gone to a shop, bought a couple of things, whacked it on the canvas. You, it's a whole process has gone into that. Yeah. And there's also a bit of a needs must kind of thing, right? So I was very, I was quite poor. I grew up in quite a, uh, I don't know, sort of sketchy financial situation. So, you know, I kind of had to make my own paints. There are good paints, but they're very expensive. Um, so I didn't really have access to that either. So I kind of had to be a bit more inventive, I suppose. I think when you get started in anything, especially if you're from a background that isn't like you don't have loads of money to just throw all the the best technology or the best whatever is out there. Like it's amazing how much actually if you just look into it like you did with the paints, there are so many ways that you can create stuff affordably or like I talk about it a lot with like technology, like I'm a photographer and Mm. I think like you don't need the best cameras to make a good image. Like so much of it can be done with a cheap camera or your phone and then just put it through some editing software because actually just the time and effort that it's going to take to learn how to edit things better is going to give you an image that will rival something that costs loads that you could just like use straight out of the bank. And then the process of learning, the knowledge that you'll gain through doing that and the kind of appreciation, it's so similar to what you're saying with the art. It's like at the end of it, you can be proud of it because you've really put work into that. It's true. It's true. It's just so much more rewarding. You know, it's almost too easy to just grab something off the shelf and, you know. Do you consult with any sort of outside people? Do you, is there any sort of scientists involved? Because you've created so many products now. What's the, um, the sort of um, process of, of developing a new product? Uh, that's a good question. So um, first of all, it's all audience led, right? So it's not, I have a crazy idea at this point. People are writing in and they're suggesting things and we're getting a sense of what's needed because actually we're not profit not for profit right so we can't just make every old thing so it's quite it's quite limited mm. we're trying to add value we're trying to make things that you can't get elsewhere solve problems so you know when we see one that we're like okay for instance the mirror paint people were like that there's things but there's not what we need 
I was like, okay, we'll take it on. So that was a collaboration with an external lab, actually, um, that we collaborated with to develop that. Um, and they are real geeks. But in the studio, I have two full-time scientists. One of them is an amazing chemist. Uh, I mean, amazing paint chemist. And the other one is a forensic scientist who's amazing at solving problems, putting things together, researching different ways of doing things. And the two of them with me and the community is kind of how we're, how we're doing this. How important would you say problem solving is in creativity? Oh, it's, it's not even important. It is creativity. That's what creativity is. Um, creativity is finding a new or novel or unique or innovative way around something. I mean, that is the creative impulse, isn't it? Um, without that, you're, um, you know, if you face a problem and then you freeze, then that's a really sad state of affairs. You can, if you face a problem and then you dig into your creative uh, inspiration to solve it, that's when you start pushing boundaries and creating things that are new. So, you know, we could look at all the mirror chrome spray paints that are out there and go, hey, that's really hard. Everyone's had to go. We might as well stop. Or we can say, let's get really creative. What's this going to take? And then, uh, and then creativity comes and then you make interesting things and then hopefully they're useful because they're new. And, and where do you feel like the, the confidence comes from there? Because it's like, I feel like if someone comes to you with an idea, you're going to be like, yeah, I'm pretty sure we can solve that because you've got the confidence that you know you can do it whereas i feel like a lot of people getting started or people who wouldn't count themselves as creative might say oh i'm not creative because they don't feel confident enough to solve those problems no 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 it's easier than that you don't even need the confidence um i don't have any um i don't know if it's going to work or not i'm not obsessed with the outcome i don't even take it that far so um i don't care whether it works or not i'm absorbed in the practice of doing it um so i even take it there um, and I don't honestly know. I mean, like in reality, probably nine out of 10 things don't work, but I enjoy trying and tinkering with it. And then every now and then one does. And that's okay with me because I enjoy the work. I'm showing up to do the work that I'm passionate about. I don't care whether it works. I love it when it does, but I'm not yeah. that obsessed with the outcome like that. One of the problems you have solved is the problem of glitter. How did you get around that and make glitter actually eco-friendly? Yeah, no, that's an important one. That was a big problem, but it wasn't actually that hard because um, glitter is plastic, which is basically cellulose. Well, we know that plants make cellulose. So it's not too much of a jump to realise that there's all this waste material coming off of eucalyptus, which they use for essential oils. And what do they do with it? They throw it away. Well, what if they don't throw it away and we colour it? And then we roll it flat and then cut it up. You actually get eco-glitter, don't you? So um, it was a bit of a tangential jump to get to that. But we were like, what else is cellulose? Oh, plants make cellulose. Wait, so why are we making it out of plastic? And where do we get cheap plant that doesn't hurt the environment? Oh, they, they're throwing that away. Okay, well, can we repurpose that? Because sometimes what you need is the thing that's left on the floor. You're just missing the point. Um, so that's how we solved that. And... Um, People seem to be using it. The problem we have with it is it's still really expensive compared to plastic glitter because we can't make it in the batches that these huge Chinese factories yeah. are chucking out plastics. So to get people off that plastic junk and onto more sustainable things is really hard because you buy our glitters, you're in for 20 quid. You could go down the works and be in for three pounds. And mm. that's difficult. But that's education, you know. Because you're, you are solving, solving these problems, I and from 
speaking to you, I'd imagine you're, you probably want your ideas of like open source, right? So if someone then wanted to go and create their own eco glitter, have you have you been approached by anyone who wants to like take the idea on or is it literally just you guys that are flying this no, flag? Sometimes people do write in and, and they ask how to do things and they're, they're really, it's quite an open community. So we, we're really keen to share. I mean, it's not like we want to be the only one. Like in the ideal world is that the big glitter manufacturers actually learn from us and step up. You know, that would be great. Mm. I mean, I'd love it if we didn't ever have to sell another Dazzle because people can get it on the yeah. high street yeah. for three quid, you know. I'm all about that. 100%. Yeah. So obviously you you crowdsource your your ideas. So you'll never just make a product just for the sake of it. You'll you'll I, I guess you'll get a significant number of people asking for one thing and then you go, mm. okay, this is what we're going to um direct mm. our time into. Have you had any messages from from like new artists who are who are just discovering your products for the first time? Like what are some of the the interesting feedback that you've had from people? Oh, you know, it's so varied. I mean, every day there's so much. I mean, the nicest ones are the ones where people have never painted before in their life and never thought art was for them. And the materials have been a way in. Firstly, to start making work and then looking at other people's work. They're beautiful. All those messages are the reason why I want to do it. Um, but yeah, just sometimes they're just some great ideas or someone shows you something they've made, which is amazing, like a great piece of work. Yeah. Um, they're the best ones. What would you say to someone who doesn't think that they're creative or knows, or knows someone, because I imagine most people listening to this show will be creative, uh, who knows someone who is maybe, yeah, kind of wouldn't count themselves as creative. How could you inspire someone to pick up a paintbrush and like or do anything in a creative practice it's hard because um you know it's not about imposing something on people you must yeah. make art you know it's really not my thing yeah. i just not into it that's okay as well right but if you do want to start to connect with your creativity the 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 the, the message that i have is um stop not doing it and and that's that that's deeper than you think when you hear that, right? So it's not just do it like night, no, just start painting something, just start writing. It's not that. What you're actually doing first is you're not being creative. Actually, as a species, that's what we're built to do. The apex of humanity is creative self-expression. That's why we are different than monkeys. That's what we are. But we don't do it. Why do some of us not do it? So what we first have to do is deal with the easier thing, which is softening into the fact that maybe we need to stop not doing it and see what emerges. And it might be it starts where you start icing a cookie for your kids and yeah. then that stems into something else. Or maybe a bit of music comes on and you start just moving, you know. So everyone has their creative voice and, you know, no way's right, no way's wrong, but it's important to... A, realise you have one, and B, stop not letting it out because the world needs to see it and you need to make it. That's where I go with that. Obviously, Culture Hustle is, is, has turned into this sort of behemoth and, and now is, is, I would imagine, taking up a lot of your time. How do you balance Culture Hustle with your own practice because you're still a practising artist? Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, um, to put it into context, we just moved into a new building and... You know, we've got 40 members of staff at Culture Hustle now. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, there's a creative director, there's an art department, there's paint makers, there's um, the research and development team. And I've turned into, well, you'd say like a CEO, but 
but I don't feel like that at all. I still feel like an artist, right? So yeah. um, how do you wrestle that? I go in as an artist. I see the project as an artwork. I see the piece, the whole thing as a piece of performance art. I see how is what we make and put out into the world connecting with an audience in the same way a sculpture would, in the same way a piece of public art would. Um, we're still doing the same thing. We're still making stuff that I believe is good and sharing it with an audience and trying to connect around ideas. And to me, um, if I put paint, this is going to sound a bit conceptual, but I'm going to go there because I think your audience <laughs> will get this. If I put paint on a canvas, it's a painting because I'm an artist. If I take the paint off the canvas and put it in a pile in the floor, it's a sculpture, arguably still a painting because I'm an artist. If I put that paint in a jar, it's still an artwork because I'm an artist and it's paint. If I send it to you on the internet, you now have a piece of my art in your house that I has my signature on it. It might look like pink paint in a jar, but to me it's a piece of art. If you then take the lid off and you make a piece of work, you and me are making a collaboration. That's beautiful. That's how I see it. I love you, man. That's <laughs> such a good answer. So cool. <laughs> One thing you mentioned there was audience. And I think what you've managed to do really well is grow a good audience and a good community. How is it that you kind of maintain that community and kind of really like... Galvanize. Yeah. Galvanize, I don't know. I mean, it's not... It's not. sounds kind of weird. It's not considered like that. So... There are friends, like really, and I know like brands talk about this shit all the time and it's all half-assed and it's not real. Um, they genuinely are our friends and we genuinely do care. Um, so we're making it together. You can't do it without them. They can't do it. We, we, I don't know. It's like a house party. We're just getting on with it together. I don't know how else to describe it. It's very real. I think that's that's the perfect answer. I think it's all about the people and it's not just using the audience as a metric just to kind of make yourself feel good it's about having those real connections and i think a lot of people especially these days because social media is so big and that's their first approach of uh, anything that they forget that the people are there and actually the importance of the people to make it go further it's not just about you it's not this ego driven thing it's about a community yeah, and it's also not about growth. Like, it's not like, how do we get more people? How are we bigger this year than last year? You know, there's too many people putting that as the holy grail. Forget that. How can we actually look after the people who've supported us to make this thing? And, and how can we keep making stuff together forever? That's way more interesting. I don't care if we're bigger or smaller next year than this year, or we get 10,000 more Instagram followers. I, I could care less about that. What I care about is the fact people are making good art and that we're, we're having fun. And so for someone listening to this who might think that social media metrics are more important than that, what would you say to them? I just laugh. I just laugh. <laughs> I, I mean, like, do you really think if people put a heart on an Instagram picture, they actually love you? Real love isn't how you click a button. And like you said earlier, um, you know, yeah, we can quantify it a bit with social, but what about all the other things we can't quantify? Like what the hairdresser says when you get in your hair, you go into the chips. Oh, did you hear about the thing that's happening? There's so much going on that we can't quantify. Why don't we stop quantifying it and actually look at like real um, interactions, real emotional contact with people. And let's see the depth of meaning. So let's actually play to the depth of experience rather than the 
quantity of it. I mean, how, if we've learned anything through this COVID and what's happening on the high street, is quantity isn't the answer. More isn't better. Mm. It's not. It's not the right mm. way. Not at all. And on the topic of COVID there, it's like, it's obviously been a very weird year for everyone. How have you found community being able to continue because of the internet? Because obviously you can't go out and meet people now to have those proper interactions. In what way can you still have and kind of keep that community as live as much as possible? Well, I think we're super lucky that, that we have the internet. I mean, if this had happened, you know, people compare it to one of the world wars or whatever. I mean, they couldn't communicate at all we didn't have any yeah. sense so we are so lucky and like thanks thanks to technology i mean like you can't it's been brilliant hasn't it um but at the same time you know it's been hard i've had big art shows cancelled i've not been able to connect with with people who work on the culture hustle projects in the same way you know we've been connecting on zoom um rather than seeing each other face to face and nuance is lost you know make no mistake like communication is about more than a video chat and mm -hmm. things are lost in translation online on email on whatsapp or whatever so that's been hard and then also you know like i had covid early on and it wiped me out for about a week and it was minor like i wasn't in hospital i know people got really bad i'm not saying that but it's lingered with me for about well since march so you know a while and it keeps bouncing back and i've had a hard time so i haven't had the same energy or the same focus so that's mm -hmm. been really tough. I mean, it hasn't been easy for anybody. And I'm one of the lucky ones, you know, who's, who's all right. But I know people have been really affected. It's been tough, especially on the arts. Have you seen any like really good examples during this period of how the arts have really succeeded online and kind of like maybe transitioned a bit? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you saw, but one of the projects we did was VOMA, the Virtual Online Museum of Art. So that's VOMA.space if anybody wants to visit it. And we actually built a virtual museum from scratch, working with CGI designers, game designers and technologists and a good curator and an architect. And we put exhibitions on. And the reason why we did that, interestingly, is because no one else was stepping up to do it, which was strange. You'd expect like, you know, galleries put things online or whatever. It wasn't the same because their agenda was different. So most of the stuff we saw was people trying to sell stuff because people couldn't go into the gallery to buy the art. They were forced reluctantly to make an experience online to try and keep the business going we actually said hey what about all these people who are stuck at home who can't get to the museum or see art so i think we came out of that which well, i'm proud of what we did um but i'm trying to think of other other things i mean there were people like um live streaming live drawing classes things like that were going on there was definitely some sort of the, the musicians seemed to be doing a lot of sort of streaming gigs and stuff i think that community really got it um, more than visual arts actually um, a lot of performers were doing things. Punch Drunk did something amazing oh, on Facebook. Oh, what did they do? Because I um, loved them and I didn't what, see that. What they did was a 24-hour live stream that was streamed live that they broadcast on a mobile phone onto Facebook. And it, they went through all these different like villages and buildings and this drama. And it was, it was epic what they built. Um, they just embraced it. They just took it there. And... Um, that was one of my favourite things, actually, that punch drunk thing that they did. 
Uh, I don't know if you can get a replay somewhere, but you should try and look it up. Mm, definitely. I would recommend anyone check out Voma as well. Like you, you can see the love that's gone into building it. Just just the experience of walking around, like the textures of everything and the and the movement of the water and yeah, and the fact that there was a a Caravaggio hanging in there was a, was a big uh, thumbs up from me. So I think another thing that you did really well that popped onto my radar was the um, the job center. Oh, when, thank you. Yeah. When Rishi, that was that was really funny. Yeah, um, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, it was just one of those things. It was like, so Rishi Sunak said, you know, artists should retrain. And it was actually Bridgeway. And actually, I was getting messages from a lot of artists. So it's actually real. They're literally getting phone calls from Universal Credit telling them to get a job in the prison service or whatever. And they're like, but I'm planning my show. I've been successful. What are you on about? Like, I'm the worst person to work in a prison. Are you insane? <laughs> I'm an artist. This is mad. Don't send me into a war zone and it, oh, I'll lose. <laughs> you know? um, so so that is actually really going on. So I wanted to do something. So, we, so I made um, an installation, a piece of public art in the middle of London. And it was a sort of pseudo artist job center, um, which was really about the idea of retraining. So it looked like an artist job center. It looked a bit 90s, a bit... A bit um, a bit dirty, a bit grimy, but the sad thing that came out of that was, um, and I wasn't expecting it, real artists were pressing the buzzer to get real jobs, and the jobs were ridiculous, like ballpoint pen tester, toothpaste yeah. tube scrap, and they were like, I'm a performance artist, I've been in 84 shows in the last two years, I've got no work, I'd like to apply for the job to test ballpoint pens, please, and I was like, this is real, like, I didn't realise quite how inundated we'd be um, and how bad the situation was. It's serious. Yeah, it really is. I was speaking to a friend recently and his one of his mates is a, a cello player who's played concerts with Bjork and, and like really like an accomplished musician and he's retraining as an electrician. Um, but I think we've we've mentioned it on the show before. Now is the time for a survival job. And if you are a creative at heart, like maybe maybe now's not the time to to pursue those things and that's fine like you can always pick it up later it's like your creativity is not going to go anywhere but now survival mode and if you need a, a regular boring job to do that then that's that's fine get that job you have to look we just have to keep going for long enough till we can make our work and that's it yeah, and exactly. again it goes back to that thing why are you doing it you know you can work in tele sales to make your art or you can work in tele sales to go out on a Friday night. And if you're there to make art, then you're way ahead of the game and that is what you should do. I mean, T.S. Eliot worked in a bank uh, as a bank clerk and wrote some of the best poetry the world's ever had. So um, there's no shame in that at all. It's a beautiful thing to do, that for your art. It's part of making the work. To see it's part of making the work. It's almost similar to like making the paints. It's just putting that extra effort in before you've even put paint on canvas. It's like, and when you finished it, you're going to be so proud because you know how much work went into that that wasn't just the actual creation. It's part of the process. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier bringing on a creative director. What was the decision there of that role to not actually be yourself? Oh, and that's a really good question. So um, I'm not good at everything. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> You know, there's people who are better at things than me. And Nat is a really, really good creative director who's worked on things that I really admire and I really love her work and I love the things she's done. And I know that for the future of the project, it can't be about me. It can't always be me that, that leads it. You know, it needs to take on its own strength. And to, if it's going to grow, it needs people who can do things I can't do. So 
I, you know, I'm good at some things, but creatively directing the direction of a project like Culture so as it grows is above my knowledge, above my ability. And it was like, I need someone who knows how to do this properly because I wouldn't be serving people properly if I'd have, oh, it's all about me. It's got my name on it. How I say goes. It's not an ego trip at all. It needs pros. Have you always had that mindset or did you want to think, oh, I can kind of do all this, like, it's my thing, I'll just do it myself? No, never. I've always admired artists who, you know, because people get stick, like Damien Hurst gets stick, Jeff Koons gets stick, so they don't make every single piece with their own two hands, right? Mm -hmm. And Damien Hurst will tell you, well, I'm like the architect, you know, architects don't build their own buildings, I come up with it and then I need help. And I'm not ashamed to say I need help sometimes with my ideas. And let's get someone in who's really good because we're going to get a better thing to share with people. And my job is to get the best thing to the audience possible. And I might not be the guy to do it. And I'm cool with that. Yeah, the idea is the artwork, isn't it? Um, a, lo a lot of your work is about um, people and communities and I suppose connection on a wider level. Where did you find that kind of, where did that come from of, of that need to express that through your artwork? Lots of things. I mean, I sort of, you know, I grew up in the 80s. It was a hard situation. As I explained, it was very, very poor upbringing. But there was a lot of love, but there was no money. And I could see the problems of society. There was a lot of unemployment, whatever. And I was like, you know, my parents wanted me to be a doctor because I was quite clever. And that was a way to help people. I got that. But I like the idea that art can do that as well. Um, so I see artists could actually have a function i hate this idea that we're irrelevant and unimportant and a bit flimsy you know actually i think we can step up and, and bring some fresh ideas and, and contribute so it kind of comes from that point of view and then back in um the last recession like 2008 it was really bad and i went through that and a lot of the dealers who were selling my work and stuff they went bust and it was a terrible time and i decided i was going to let these smiley face clouds uh, off from the Tate, these eco bubbly clouds that I call happy clouds. And I just went down there and I let these clouds off and they floated from the Tate towards the financial district, these giant smiley faced eco clouds. And people understood the work. It was suddenly in all the newspapers and people connected with it and it was simple. And they understood what I was saying that art might be able to help and it was something uplifting and it just worked. And at that point, something kind of clicked in me. I was like, oh my God, like art can actually do something. And the whole course of my work changed to be, it just did a whole 180, like that moment. And it was like, it's not about that. It's about actually, and then things like, the, obviously the job center comes from that idea. Like, let's put it where the people are. Let's be useful. Let's make them laugh on the way to work. Let's spread some stuff, let's do stuff. So I started to make much more public community focused things. Um, and at that point, two really weird things happened. All my galleries dropped me because you can't sell a job center and you can't sell a fluffy cloud that disappears. And they would say, well, where's the new paintings? Everyone liked it when you did those glittery lips. Can we have another 20 of those? And I was like, I'm just not interested. I'm really sorry. Um, it's not, not who I am. You can't buy my stuff. <laughs> I don't make that anymore. Um, I make experiences and you can't own an experience. You can merely have it. So there you go. Shot myself in the foot a bit. But. <laughs> you mentioned there of, I think we are fed and I, I always sound like super tinfoil hatty when I go on these rants on the podcast, but <laughs> I think that we are fed this this kind of bullshit of that the artist can't make a difference. That the like in every eighties movie, the art the artist is the loser, the loser boyfriend that the dad doesn't like. I think we're fed this narrative 
because art is so powerful. And for such a long time, I believed that I couldn't make a difference and that I couldn't like that my art was useless because I was being told from everywhere, like you're, you're, this is not a career option. This is not like a viable thing for you. And because most artists get that from every direction, we take it on and we kind of undervalue the the power of art. And I think it's only, you've obviously overcome that. And I think I've started to, and I think that, yeah, we all need to just realize like how much like like really fundamentally is like one of the if not the most powerful medium is 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 art is like songs poetry paintings like to make people feel feelings like that's how we're going to change the planet yeah 100 you're right and it's beautiful i got i've got weird goose flesh when you're saying that yes exactly all of that that's right um now whether it's a conspiracy to stifle our creativity i don't know if i go that far um i think it's been a slow erosion of us sort of forgetting what we actually are which is creative beings um but i don't think it's that hard to remember what we are either but the the but the reason that that happens is because they want us all to be in these it's like when i am buying my sneakers i know exactly what's going on there like i'm i'm in on the joke like i know that i'm being like packaged up and going here's your slice of happiness like have another pair of trainers i know that i'm in that kind of thing but the thing is look <laughs> if this is the thing this is what i say if art is an experience right so so just just play along if art's not an object an object gives you an experience the sneakers give you an experience right at least when you're thinking about buying them. That experience might change the minute you buy them, but that's a different thing, <laughs> yeah. right? We won't go there because it will annoy you. But let's just, say, <laughs> let's just say there's an experience that's instigated by an object that somebody made. So Jeff Koons made a balloon dog and you can like it, hate it, not really get it, doesn't really matter, but there's an experience of the object, right? The art is the experience, not the object. Not the action of making something, not the object itself, but actually an ephemeral thing between the viewer and the thing, this experience. If that's the case, and I believe it is, and you might disagree with me, then how do you buy that experience? So, for example, Damien Hurst and Jeff Koons are clever because they understand what I mean. So they're taking the piss out of this, and people don't realise. So you can't buy... You pay £80 for a Jeff Koons balloon dog. You haven't bought the art. You've bought the object. You can't buy the art. The art is free. It's not in the object. So they're idiots. So when Damien Hurst makes hundreds of butterflies and traps them, he's making fun of collectors. He pin butterflies in boxes back in the day. And when they pay millions, he's laughing because they bought some dead butterflies. They didn't buy his art because you can't buy art because it's an experience. And I come from it from this point of view. So what you thought you bought with the sneakers, when you got them, you didn't get because it was never about the sneakers. It was about the hype that exists before you buy the sneakers. And you can't buy the hype, which is why you guys keep buying more sneakers. <laughs> you never buy it. You can't, you can't fulfill it. Even if you buy a million of them, you'll still feel that because that feeling has got nothing to do with sneakers. It's to do with you because yeah. this feeling starts in you, not in the object. A hundred percent. No, look, I get it. Um, we we mentioned obviously the the audience, the audience being really important. Creating art that um, gives a positive experience to the 
to the viewer. But what about um, the the mental health links to us expressing our creativity? How have you kind of discovered that? Okay, so that's really important. So um, to understand that, we have to go a bit into my personal history a little bit. Um, so when I was 19 at art school, I nearly died from an allergic reaction. And it was a really brutal thing. I hadn't seen my mum for ages. I flopped on her doorstep, kind of dying. I went to hospital uh, and they couldn't make the allergy go away. So they basically said, it's not a case of if you're going to die, it's when. So I said goodbye to my mum, my sister, and I was in this basically waiting to die. And they gave me a drip um, of this blood plasma and I was allergic to it. And I flatlined. And for some mad reason, I didn't die and I came around and I don't know why. It was all very cosmic and a bit weird, a bit just insane, like some weird psychedelic strangeness happened. But um, after that, I went home and I had a huge anxiety problem because they couldn't tell me what I was allergic to. So it could be any one of 52 things. So I couldn't eat anything um, because I was scared. So I had an eating disorder. So my mental health just hit rock bottom. And this is back in the, the 90s. And I... You know, young men didn't have mental health issues in the 90s. Mm-hmm. They did, but my God, we didn't. Talk I, about, yeah. You couldn't. Like, you, I didn't even know what to call it. Like, yeah. it wasn't even stigma. It's like, we're way ahead of that now. But in those days, I didn't even have the words. I didn't know it was anxiety, right? I didn't even know it was that. I just knew something wasn't right. So I started drawing and painting to get through it. That's why I put those three pictures a day on eBay. As a, almost as therapy, I just wanted to get something out and share it with someone. Say, this is what it feels like. Say it. It was almost like talking to it, and it worked. And it it was a lifeline for those three years, and it really got me through like such a dark time. So I know creativity works. Um, so I've done work with Mind, the mental health charity. I'm actually an ambassador for Mind, and we set up a creative therapies fund um, to help other people to connect with their creativity who are, who are going through hard times, and we find it works. Um, now how and why it works, I just think that sometimes we have things that we need to express. And I think it's hard to do it with words sometimes. Um, I do believe we're creative creatures. And I think the self or what we are does need to be expressed in some way. Otherwise, I think it gets blocked in us and it goes a bit wonky. And this is me not being a psychologist or a doctor or anything, just speaking from my experience. Um, And I think a creative outlet is beautiful because once you've found it, you have it forever. Um, it's like a little ray of sunshine that comes in. And that's what we see with people who start expressing themselves in some way. It doesn't have to be great art or important art. The point is it just needs to be done and it can be very powerful. I think that comes back to something when we talked about earlier when I was like, how can we try and get people to start being creative? I think just listening to what you just said there is the perfect reason why everyone should try and get some form of creative outlet because if that's the way you can express yourself if you don't currently have a way to express yourself if you don't write if you've never done music if you've never painted you've never done anything expressive like there's probably something trapped in you somewhere because you don't know how to convey an emotion and that's where probably mental health and like where things like suicide and things will really kick in when there is not a way to really express how you're feeling and just getting out like even just having someone to talk to that is a form of expression and i think if you don't have anyone to talk to or you feel like there's not that there then yeah just a piece of paper and a, an art material c- could be that outlet that you need to get out of how you're feeling and to make like to lead a happier yeah. existence but i think also like just on that i think it's really important people understand like it's not just people who are ill like this is something we can all 100%. do to make us feel well and good like we all know we exercise 
don't drink too much, have five fruit and veg a day, whatever, we get that message. I think a, an element of creativity is an essential part of our diet, if you like, and it should yeah. just be part of what we do. It's just who we are. You know, if you don't do it, sooner or later, you're going to wish you did. Yeah, they say that you should have therapy even if you're even if you feel fine and and that everyone should have therapy and I I would I would argue the same for creativity. Yeah, I don't see why not. It's not like like I feel like mental health and just your your body in terms of health and health in general it's a scale, isn't it? It's not like it's just healthy not healthy. It's like there's a huge kind of kind of hill I suppose going up to a cliff and it's like it's just pulling yourself back down before you hit that cliff. And making sure that you're as healthy as possible in whatever way that could be. And if you can find any way to make yourself more healthy, then there should be you should be doing that. Yeah, you've just got a head start. It's like they said with COVID, you know, people who are who are healthier, fitter, have a better diet, you know, yeah. don't have a pre existing condition like a heart illness or whatever, are more likely to have a less severe reaction. Now, you know, I I had COVID and it wasn't that bad. And I it's probably because I eat quite well. I'm a vegan. I exercise. I do yoga three times a week. You know, maybe if I hadn't have been doing those things, it would have hit me much worse. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to think that, you know, if I did have a, a big anxiety episode, my art would be there for me. And it would be mm-hmm. something that I've practiced enough. And it's something in my corner uh, ahead of time. And I think that's the reason to cultivate it as well. And it's fun and it's rewarding and it it is just yeah. why wouldn't you like yeah. it's nice like it's not 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 a chore. Um, I know no, I've noticed when you do your um, like IG lives and stuff like that, you are you get asked a lot of questions by younger artists. What do you think are the main sort of problems that are holding um, emerging artists back? I hear a few things. I mean, one of the questions that I get most is just creative block. Um, everyone asks me that every time. What do I do? I've got creative block. I don't know what to do next. So that always comes up. And then the other one is um, quite often, sadly, like discouragement from friends, family and teachers. Like it's yeah. brutal. It's wrong. And that's still going on massively. And, um, you know, I just hope we can move beyond that because that's that's really savage. You know, when your mum and your school teacher and everyone's telling you you're wasting your time. And no one in your school's ever done anything artistic ever. And no one's ever been to a museum. And it's just that kind of aspiration. And I don't really know how you fix that um, at all. I wish I did. Um, but that's the problem. I mean, I think the goal of this podcast is we aim to be that voice of when everyone else tells you that you're a lunatic, that actually, no, we were told that our our things would never work and they did. So if we can do it, there there is hope. Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, I was told I'd end up chopping my ear off and drinking meths in a bedsit if I was an artist and I was insane for going to art school, you know. I had to fight to do that because no one around me where I grew up had ever done it. They didn't even know what art was, you know, really. Um, it was insane. It was, it was like, I may as well have told them I wanted to be an astronaut and, and join yeah. NASA. You know, it was that weird, um, especially in those days, because now, luckily, you know, some artists have made money and are in the newspapers and stuff. But in the 90s, were you mad? I was like, well, it's just my thing. Like, I can't help it. It's like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and, I, and I think as well, for anyone listening to this, you still have two ears, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, dude, this was super inspiring. Thank you so much. Really, really enjoyed this chat. And I think people cool. will get a, a lot from it. Um, could you let everyone know where they can find you online? 
Yeah, so you can just Google Stuart Semple. You can find my website. It's Stuart Semple on Instagram, Stuart Semple on Twitter, and then Culture Hustle. If you want to check out what we're doing with that project, culturehustle.com, Culture Hustle on Instagram. But you'll find me, and I'm there, and I normally write back. So say hello. Boom. Amazing. Brilliant. Thank you so much, dude. It's been so good. Oh, it was a pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.